Welcome to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast, a deep dive into biblical leadership with pastor and author, Dr. Gerald Brooks. Hi, this is Pastor Gerald Brooks. Thank you so much for joining me for another podcast. Um, I'm always just delighted at the number of people who each podcast or joining us for the very, very first time. And if this is your first time with us, uh, thank you so very, very much. Uh, Today, I want to take a leadership journey, but in taking the leadership journey, uh, I need to sort of dig down and drill pretty deep on some uh, biblical standards. So let me just start by telling you, I want to talk to you about three attitudes that every leader must possess. Three attitudes that every leader must possess. The reason I'm uh, doing this lesson is that recently I've been on the road a lot. I've been at churches that are very large, and I've been at a few churches that are very small. I've been at churches that have uh, a long lifespan, and I've been at churches that are just starting their lifespan. But it seems that there's some basic things that transcend, whether it's a large church, a small church, whether it's been there a long time, or it's just beginning its journey. And uh, a lot of what I'm seeing really traces back to some attitude issues. So let me just start by saying this. One of the most famous passages in the Bible is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It gets quote all the time. The verses are famous. They're used at weddings. They're used in counseling. They're used whenever relationships begin to uh, be entered into. Uh, They're sort of the go-to kind of phrases when people don't know what to say to Uh, someone in a relationship, and it's sort of the biblical standard. And I have no problem with the fact that uh, those words are used in those contexts. But um, I also understand, as a student of God's Word, that there is a context that those words were intended to. And to be able to get the best out of what we're saying today, I need to drill down a little bit and give you the context. Now, you understand that when the Bible was written, Uh, There were no chapters and verses. Those were added later just to help us be able to process through Scripture, to be able to understand uh, where certain passages were, and to be able to uh, take those passages and really uh, take a dive into them. But when it was originally written, uh, there was just a, a constant flow of information, and it was within that flow of information that uh, what we call verses come out. So if you're going to understand 1 Corinthians 13, you have to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and then sort of jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So let's begin in 1 Corinthians 12, and in there, in verse uh, 4, it says, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And now there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operation, but is the same God, which worketh all in all. This begins to really give us the setting of what 1 Corinthians 13 is really about. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have a a discourse on gifts. How God equips people to operate within the body of Christ. And what it says here is that uh, there are gifts that God uses in the body of Christ. Some of those gifts are well-known, the gift of a pastor, the gift of a teacher, the gift of an evangelist. But there's other gifts also. But it's not just that there are gifts, but that the administration 
the application of those gifts can vary. So you can have a pastor and he can pastor from uh, different application points uh, and he can administer that gift in different ways. And so just because you have 10 pastors in the room, it doesn't mean everyone pastors the same way. But it's not only that, but their diversities of operations. So within that pastoral gift, that pastoral gift may be uh, operated in different ways. So I'm a pastor who's also a teacher. And because of that, I pastor with a teaching gift. That's how my gift operates. There's other pastors that are evangelists. They operate their pastoral gift as an evangelist. And so you begin to understand the nuances. Now, chapter 12 deals with the mechanics of the gifts. But you go over to chapter 14, and it really deals with the methods of the gifts. And it gets in a lot of detail about gifts, but it really sums up the methods of gifts in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40. And it says, let all things be done decently and in order. So I need you to take the step with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it deals with the mechanics of gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it deals with the methods of gifts, how those gifts are processed. They need to be processed in an orderly fashion. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the mechanics. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the methods. But in between, we have 1 Corinthians 13. And it was intentionally put there. Because what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is, is it is the motive of the gifts. So chapter 12, the mechanics. Chapter 13, the motives. And then chapter 14, the methods. Now you've got to get that because it's a sequencing of three thoughts on how people lead. The mechanics of leadership, the motive of leadership, the methods of leadership. That is what's being addressed. In fact, years ago, I wrote a book, Leadership According to 1 Corinthians 13. And the reason I wrote it was that I found that people who end up causing the most problems in the body of Christ are not sinners, but saints. And they're not the novices, but they're the leaders. There's nothing worse than you see leaders fight with other leaders. In 1 Corinthians 13 was how you take the mechanics of your gift, the methods of your gift, the mechanics of someone else's gift, the methods of their gift, and how you function in integrity together. So 1 Corinthians 13 is sort of the glue. It's the cement between two bricks being brought together. So again, what you have is you have the mechanics, chapter 12, the motives, chapter 13, the methods uh, in chapter 14. But in chapter 13, which I'm not going to cover, there are 15 principles of how you take the concept of love from the ethereal and you move it into the practical. And if that's something you want, you can get my book, Leadership According to 1 Corinthians 13, because it goes through all 15 of those principles. But in 1 Corinthians 13, it finishes up the motives, and it says, but now abides these three 
things. Faith, hope, and love. Three things. Faith, hope, and love. And here's what I want to tell you. If you are going to be an effective leader, if you are going to be a fruitful leader, and if you are going to be a long-term leader, then in your leadership journey, no matter how much you know about the mechanics of your gift or the motive of your gift, you've got to be able to dive into faith, hope, and love. Because the reason people make it long-term in leadership is that they've learned how to take faith, love, and hope, and they've learned how to uh, ingrain those into their process. And so, uh, faith, hope, and love, they're the attitudes that guide a leader. They're the attitudes that guide a leader. Faith, hope, and love. So, let me walk through them on a functional level. If you're going to lead, you're going to have to have faith in moments of frustration. Faith in moments of frustration. The Apostle Paul, in an earlier epistle, wrote in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. He said these words. He says, don't grow weary and well-doing. Because whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Now, notice what he said. He said, don't grow tired, don't grow frustrated in doing the right things. Can I tell you that in leadership, you're going to do the right things when other people are doing the wrong things. And you'll do the right things, and you'll not always get recognized for it. In fact, in our current society, what you find is this, that doing something wrong gets you recognized quicker than doing something right. In fact, if you want to be the person who just sort of goes viral, say something obnoxious, do something obnoxious, and you'll probably get a lot of people who will go and view whatever video platform you're on. But here's the thing. God hasn't asked us to do things wrong. He's asked us to do things right. And here's what I know. When you do right things, it's not always recognized. And that can be frustrating. And when you do right things, they're not always rewarded immediately. And that can be frustrated. See, the reason you have to have faith is the score isn't kept down here. Down here on this thing we call planet Earth, down here in this natural realm, the score is not kept. And it's not uncommon for young people in particular to say, but I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do it. Why isn't, and usually it involves with, well, why aren't I seeing more results? Why aren't more things happening? Why aren't more people coming? Why aren't more issues being uh, addressed? Why? There's a frustration level to leadership. Because you're going to do the right things. You're going to do them in the right way. And you're going to do the right things regularly. And as you do those right things and you do them, sometimes you're going to feel like, what's the use? Why should I keep doing this? No one notices. No one cares. No one's interested in this. No one 
at all is thinking about this. Why should I do what's right when other people are not? Why should I work so hard continually and repeatedly when there doesn't seem to be evident fruit of the efforts that I'm putting in? Why should I keep doing this? If you don't have faith that doing what's right pays off, you will not stick to it. But you're going to have to have faith that doing what's right will pay off. Now, I say that to you because as a young kid, if I can go back nearly 40 years ago on my journey, every day I got up and did things. I didn't do them for a few moments. I did them for hours. I didn't do them one day. I did them for weeks. I didn't do them for weeks. I did them for months. And I've done them for years. And now I've done them for decades. But if you go back to when I was a young kid, and the best thing that I had for an office was our one-bedroom apartment. My wife's in the outer part with the kitchen, and I'm in the inner part where the bedroom is. And I'm walking back and forth doing things that I know are the right things. But then the only opportunities I ever had to speak were to small groups. Many times those groups were less than 10 people. Often I would go out, I would travel hundreds of miles. I would speak every day of the week, sometimes multiple times of the week, and never speak to a group over 10 people. And I would spend hours in preparation and I would spend hours doing what I know was the right thing to do. To walk in and to have people tell me, well, usually our crowds are bigger than this. Usually we have more people there than this. We don't know what happened. And to feel the frustration of working hard and preparing. So here's what I want to say to you. If you're going to lead and you're going to lead well, and you're going to lead for a long time, then you're going to have to have the faith that doing the right thing repeatedly, that it pays off. And even if you don't see it in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year, and in multiple years, you got to write it down. Doing the right thing pays off. Doing the right thing pays off. So you have to have faith that doing what's right pays off. But it's not just that. You have to have hope in the midst of failure. Because what I can tell you is every leader fails more than they succeed. We all know the illustrations that if you want to make multi-million dollars in sports, here's what you do. You go on a baseball team and you miss seven out of ten, but you're going to make millions of dollars. Why? Because 30% of the time you hit the ball, you hit the ball well, and you hit the ball where no one can catch it. That's going to get you a payday that's going to be great. We know that uh, as a quarterback that they're going to have an accuracy rating of, of maybe about 60%. 60% of the time, are they going to throw the ball? Is the ball going to be caught that it's not going to be dropped? And as a result of that, they're going to make millions of dollars. You can go through all the sports and you can see that there's a failure rate. And one of the things that I can tell leaders is that as a leader, you will fail. In fact, Jesus sort of doubles down on this in Mark chapter 4 when he says, The kingdom of God is like a man 
putting out seed. But Jesus doesn't immediately talk about this great harvest and the great results. What he says is, is when he first throws out seed, the wind catches it, and some of the seeds fall on the rocky areas. There's no dirt there for it to begin to uh, put roots down, and so it doesn't ever succeed. And then he said, but there's others that uh, he throws out, but there's really not much depth there. And because there's not much depth there, it seems to produce for a short period of time, and then it's gone. And then he says there's other places he throws seed, and the weeds get so thick that it chokes it out. But then he says, but he does throw seed on the good ground. So if we take that just as a math equation, 75% of the time, the seed was not effective. Four kinds of ground, three kinds of ground it didn't produce in. There's failure. See, as a leader, when things don't go well, can you maintain a spirit of hope that God's still at work? Can you maintain an attitude of hope that God is still at work? If you can't do that, you're not going to lead well, and you're not going to lead for a long time. Jesus goes on and he says this. He says, um, but even where it fell on good ground, some produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. So even when you get it right, the results are not always maximized. And that's why you need hope. You need hope that even when it looks like you're failing, that God's at work. You need hope even when the harvest doesn't look as big as you want it to be, that God's at work. You need hope that uh, somehow when the efforts seem disproportionate to the results, that God is at work. You've got to understand that you need hope. You need faith when it comes to doing what's right. But on the other hand, you've got to have hope when you face failure, when things don't seem to be working, when people don't seem to be responding, when people say that they're going to be there, but they're not. You've got to have a spirit of hope. But then he says, but the greatest of these three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. And you're going to have to have love. And the reason you're going to have to have love is that people will disappoint you. People will tell you things and they will say to you, hey, I'm going to be with you. And then they're going to leave. People are going to tell you that they are committed and then they're not. People are going to tell you that they'll help, but then they don't. People will say that uh, they'll never leave you. They'll always be by your side. And then they do. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, he said that at his trial, no one was there with him. No one stood with him. That all the people who had said they'd be there with him, they weren't there. All the people he thought would stand there with him, they weren't there. Here's what I can tell you. In ministry and leadership, people will disappoint you. And you need a spirit of love. And the reason you need a spirit of love is that if you don't have a spirit of love, you will quit caring. You need love so that you do not quit caring. You need love 
so that you don't throw up your hands and say, what's the use? People, you know, don't care. People aren't interested. People aren't committed. You need love or you will just quit caring. See, in ministry, there are going to be times when you help people and they're going to leave and act like you never helped them. They're never going to let other people know. I remember a few years ago, there was somebody who was leaving my team to go start a church. Happened to be one of the worst times in our ministry because the economy had fallen and we had lost a third of all of our income. Jenny and I literally have gone off salary. Nobody knew it at that time. It's now years ago, so I don't mind talking about it. But it was the only way for some people to get paid on our staff, and we just didn't feel right that uh, people would have to, you know, uh, lose their checks. And so we didn't take one so that the church could keep going. And in the midst of that, an individual that I really needed that I thought, man, you could really help me right now because of some of the complexities of what we needed to do. I was going to give this individual a promotion, but when they walked in my office, they said, hey, I'm going to go start a church. I looked at him. I said, you know, right now I can't give you anything. I don't have anything to help you. I mean, we're, we're surviving. He didn't know that we were uh, literally going to... Um, be off salary for a while so that everyone could get paid. But in the midst of that, he's going to sign up with an organization, a great organization, a great organization where the leader and I are good friends and I admire him so much. But this organization says, we'll give a certain amount of money, but you have to have sort of a sponsor, somebody who will sign for you. And um, I ended up signing. That meant that I was going to guarantee this amount of money that if this church start failed, that they would um, uh, get paid back. And so I signed for that. Never once was I thanked. Never once did anyone come back and express gratitude. And I say this to you because this is so many years ago. But in leadership, there are times when you're going to do things and people are not always going to respond. And it will be easy for you to say, I don't care anymore. But that's what love does. Love is what you rely on to keep caring, even when you have every reason not to care. The Bible says that in the last days when Jesus comes back, it says that the love of many will wax cold. People watch the news, they watch events, and they just think, you know what? There's no reason to care anymore. In fact, in our society, people say, well, I just don't care. Well, here's the deal. God wants us to care. And the only way you can care is that you have to have that spirit of love. So again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it dealt with the mechanics. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it dealt with the methods. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13... It deals with the motives. And you have to have the right motives. You have to have a spirit of faith that you believe that if you do the right things, it's going to pay off. You have to have a spirit of hope, even when things look like they're failing, that God's still at work. And you have to have a spirit of love, even when people may disappoint you, 
that you will keep going forward and you will keep moving forward and that you will not quit caring. So 1 Corinthians 13, is it a great passage for marriage? Yeah. Is it a great passage for friendship? Yes. But it's a leadership passage. And it's what leaders need. Three attitudes. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Because it keeps you caring when no one else does. I hope this helps you. It's just a simple lesson. But I hope it helps you in your leadership journey. And as we move forward, I think God's going to give us some more thoughts that will help you. Do me a favor. Let somebody else, if you know a young minister, a young leader in business, uh, let them know about these. As I said, the world can teach us skills of leadership, but only Jesus can teach us the heart of leadership. And there's nothing worse than seeing someone who has great skills but doesn't have the right heart. I think that our podcast can help people. Thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you again in a few weeks. Thank you for listening to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast. If you'd like more information on Dr. Brooks's books, audio, or speaking engagements, please go to geraldbrooksministries.com.